Well, let me invite you to take out your copy of God's Word and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. We'll be in verses 26 through 40. We'll read all of that here momentarily. But while you're turning there, let me just um, drop a piece of groundbreaking, earth-shattering news on you. Uh, I am not an extroverted person. <clears throat> I know I put on a facade of basically like I could host a you know late-night news show, but I really don't. I am introverted. I, I'm not outgoing. However, I do like to have conversations with people, one-on-one uh, -on -one or maybe you know a small group of people. And I, I love to talk. I love to have conversations. I think I do a pretty good job at listening. But there is a place here in town that I have found very challenging for me to have a conversation. And it's walk-ons. I don't know if you've been to walk-ons. Uh, their food's great, so this is not a diss on, on the food. But at walk-ons, if you've never been there, first of all, it's always crowded. So great for them. Uh, so you've got all the people talking. And then there's about 100 TVs around the room. And every one of them has a different station on it. And so for me to be sort of focused and have a, a conversation that is meaningful and to be able to respond and give feedback and stuff is almost impossible there. Because there are a thousand things going on. As I'm hearing all the conversations of the people next to me. I'm looking at this sport and thinking, who is that team? And then what is that over there? And I'm just all over the place. And it's very difficult to have some sort of a meaningful outcome of that event. And when I approach 1 Corinthians 14, well, really even in back into 11 and 12 and 13, I think of the Corinthian church as a walk-on. Because there was some chaos going on. The people were gathering, and there was so much stuff going on. Just people yelling over this guy, and you don't belong here, and you sit down. That it was like trying to have some conversation. You know, like trying to just confess your love to your wife when there's a thousand people talking around you. It's almost impossible to do. And the chaos that's going on here in Corinth is a result of really selfishness. We've seen this already. People thought that they were more important than this guy, and my gift is better than your gifts. And so as a result, it just sort of explodes in the gathering. And when Paul hears about this going on, his concern is not to write to them to sort of stifle their creativity. He's not uh, getting on to them for being too passionate about Jesus. Rather, his concern is for the edification of the church. He's concerned about the church being built up. And he finishes 1 Corinthians 14 here with an exhortation to be orderly in our using of the spiritual gifts. Not to be chaotic, but to be orderly. So that, he says, people can learn, they can grow, they can be built up in their faith. Because chaos will do none of those things. In fact, chaos will compete against all of those things. And as I thought about this verse, I thought that, you know, the sort of the condition of the church in America today, uh, it's pretty woeful, I think. And many of our so-called churches today look more like a rock concert or a variety show or a full-on circus. And so I think there's a lot for us to take from a simple exhortation to be orderly and to do what builds up. Uh, not necessarily here at Crosspoint, I don't think we have a circus, but if you've been on YouTube lately or watch TV lately, you've seen plenty of shenanigans going on in church services. And so I think Paul's words here about the importance of orderliness and the importance of focusing on everyone being built up is as timely as ever. Okay, so our main idea for today, what I hope for us to see in the passage, is that all components of the worship gathering should be constructive. 
building up believers in spiritual maturity. That's Paul's main idea here. Now, he'll, he'll deal with some details and some things here and there, but his main takeaway is that everything we do in a Sunday morning gathering right now should be constructive. It should have that goal of building us up so that when we leave, we are more, more spiritual uh, in our faith and more confident and built up than even we were when we walked in. And so that's our main idea. So if you are in 1 Corinthians 14, stand with me as we read in honor of uh, the reading of God's word. I'm actually going to begin in verse 1. We're going to read the whole chapter together so we get a running start at where we are in our text today. So 1 Corinthians chapter 14, beginning in verse 1, if you're there, say word. Excellent. Paul writes, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments, such as the flute or the harp, do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Notice how many times he references building up. Verse 13, therefore one who speaks in a tongue should pray for the power to interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you're saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues, and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so, falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Verse 26, this is our passage for today. What then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. 
If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two, or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Or was it from you that the word of God came, or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge the things that I'm writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So, my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. Let me pray for us. Our Father in heaven, we are grateful to have your word before us, and we ask for the wisdom to understand it. Uh, Give us humility to receive, uh, particularly uh, parts that may sort of rub up against our preconceived notions or our own um, selfishness or our own sort of hesitancy to follow you. Uh, Help us to follow, to learn, to yield, and to accept what you would have for us today. And we ask that your spirit would be at work among us. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. And may what we hear and may what we do in response be honoring to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I want to begin this morning by reading again for us verses 33 and 40, because Paul includes here in these sort of summary uh, thoughts about the worship gathering uh, an, an address here and a reference to some chaos in Corinth that needs correcting. So there's chaos here that needs correction. There's two of these verses. In verse 33, he says, Uh, For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. And then later in verse 40, he ends with all things should be done decently and in order. And of course, within this context, he's also going to give some very basic instructions about how to be orderly, how to do things decently. But clearly what was happening in the Corinthian church services was chaotic and confusing at best. Uh, Some pandemonium going on particularly because of the misuse of spiritual gifts. And it may appear at first glance that Paul is just sort of writing to them saying, you know what, guys, just rein it in a little bit, okay? We don't need 11 if 9 will do. Just turn it down and everything will be fine. But I think if we approach it with that idea, I think we we miss the severity of what's happening in Corinth and just the level of craziness that necessitates Paul saying, guys, You need some order in your gatherings. And so to help us to get a feel for what's going on here, I want to try something to give, I want to try to paint a picture of what it would have been like to walk in the doors of First Baptist Church of Corinth on a Sunday morning. What would would you have experienced? You're new in the area, looking for a church home. There's First Baptist, got the big sign, and you walk in, you know, Corinth, what do you have to offer? What would you have found in the gathering? Well, you would have walked in and quickly saw that of all the chairs available, it seems like people are sitting in groups. I don't know which group to sit in. You come to find out that, well, it depends on who you follow. 
You follow Peter, you sit in this corner. If you prefer Paul, you could sit over here. If you prefer Apollos, then you could have somewhere else. If you follow Jesus, well, of course, you sit up front. Well, you find your place, you take a, a place where you can sit, and you notice that when a certain couple walks in, everybody sort of hushes. And someone leans over and says, yeah, that's, uh, that's the couple, yeah, you don't ask about them. Uh, yeah, that guy, uh, that's his stepmother, but we don't, we don't address that. And then finally, the service begins, and someone stands up and says, I have a revelation from the Lord, I have a message to give. So they start to teach, and immediately, two or three other people stand up and say, no, 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 no. You sit down, everyone needs to hear my message first. And so suddenly you're listening to eight sermons at one time. Everybody's shouting over somebody else. Then in the haze of, of, of the, you think the, the TVs around the room, the walk-ons, suddenly you begin to hear people saying things that you don't even know what language they're talking. Just people, just, just chaos. You, this person's talking, that person's talking. And of course, you're a visitor and you're thinking, what have I gotten myself into? And this continues and it goes on and on and on. Finally, at the end, they say, you know what? Hey, you picked a great day to come because we're actually having a potluck lunch today. Fantastic. So you go to a potluck lunch. Well, turns out some people get to eat, some people don't. The people that look maybe uh, not as wealthy seem to go without. Meanwhile, half the church is getting drunk because they have all the food and the wine. You share communion together, a little bit unsure if you should or not. Uh, finally, it's over, you've survived, and you manage to walk out the door with everyone saying, hope to see you next week, and you're like, yeah, yeah, thanks. And you walk out and you say, never again. You get, you get in the car, you get on your donkey, and you think, you turn to your wife and say, what was that mess? That wasn't on their website, I didn't expect that. That's what would have happened, and I know this illustration may seem kind of extreme, But when you take 1 Corinthians, how far we've come in the book, and we've seen all this stuff going on, hopefully you start to, when you put it together, you just see what a a circus their Sunday morning gathering was. And why then Paul says, guys, this has to stop. Like We need to rein this in and find some order here. Because a chaotic worship service, it doesn't just confuse people. Paul actually points out in verse 33 that it conflicts with the very character of God. Look at verse 33 again. For God is not a God of confusion or chaos, but of peace. It says, guys, when, you, when your service is just going nuts, that actually is conflicting with what we know about the character of God, the orderliness, the intentionality of God. I mean, go back to Genesis 1 and read how God creates things. Is it disordered? Is it chaotic? Of course not. We know that the Holy Spirit gives us spiritual gifts, We know that in our worship gathering, the Spirit of God is moving among us to convict us of sin, to point us to Jesus, to soften us to biblical teaching, to give us knowledge of what we're hearing. And our worship then should reflect that intentional, orderly working of the Spirit. But in Corinth, it was just chaos. This guy shouting over that guy. This person says, you're not as important, you sit back here. And in that, Somewhere you have a church, you have church members trying to grow and trying to learn. Now, what causes this in Corinth? As I said earlier, ultimately it's selfishness. Remember back in chapter 12, verse 7, Paul says that everybody gets spiritual gifts for the common good and that the the real proper working out of these gifts is to be used for building everybody up so that we're in this together. Well, the problem in Corinth, as we've seen in chapter 12, is selfishness that says, 
my gift is more important than yours, so therefore I get to talk. Or uh, my gift is more spiritual than yours, therefore I'm more important. It's the selfishness that says I'm somehow better because I have the flashy gifts like tongues and prophecies. I can do miracles and healings. And you guys over there, you just have the, you know, you get service and prayer. Not as flashy. The focus is supposed to be on the common good, but when the focus goes from the common good to the individual advancement, it's chaos that ensues. This is exactly what James talks about in James chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. He says, For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. Because if you've got selfishness, if you've got jealousy there, then what flows from that is disorder, vile chaos, vile practices. He says, but the wisdom from above is first pure and then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. Selfishness leads to chaos, and it's alive and well in Corinth. And Paul says, no, 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 we need order. Look at verse 40. This is kind of his summary statement, wrapping it all up, putting in a bow. He says, verse 40, but all things should be done decently and in order. Now, when we say decently, he doesn't mean the way we often use it, like, oh, that was a decent meal. That was a decent movie, like a quality statement. Decently here means um, what is becoming what is fitting for a certain context, what is proper. So he says, don't have things in your gathering that you'd look at and say, oh, that doesn't seem like the right place for that, something that's out of place. He says it should be decently and in order. Again, it's not one after the other order. It's the idea of being disciplined, being structured with a specific purpose in mind. Okay, when we say that there needs to be order here, it can sound like Paul is saying, let me just put some restraints around your worship. And I know that there are religious traditions that really pride themselves on free worship. We come together and it's just whatever the Spirit leads. We'll just, just go crazy, wherever he leads us. And so we come in and say, no, 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 we need to put some restraints around there. It can seem like we are sort of uh, tying people up and saying, no, you can't worship freely. But actually, Paul gets at here the idea that it's the restraint. It doesn't hold us back. The restraint is what actually makes this whole thing work. Okay, the the problem in Corinth is that there is no restraint. And as a result, it's just people going crazy. And Paul says, no, we need restraint. We need to put a boundary around our worship practices. Don't let them go to any extreme so that we can then do this thing properly and people can be built up. And it makes me think of flying a kite. If you've ever flown a kite or you've seen a fly a kite, you throw it up in the air and then you hold the string and then that's what keeps it up there. Well, we don't, we're not doing that and we think, boy, if I could just get rid of this string, this kite would be so much better. Well, how does that work? Drop the string or cut it. What happens to the kite? Crash and burn. It has to have the restraint of the string to work. We tend to look at that something like this and say, oh, Paul's just putting, you know, boundaries around us and it'd be so much better if we could just do whatever we want. No, actually it isn't. Because if without restraint, as we've seen here in Corinth, you don't get this beautiful, healthy, um, beneficial worship gathering. You get chaos, selfishness, people being told they don't belong. You get all of that. So having in place restrictions on what we can do in, in a worship gathering 
uh, making sure that it's done decently and in order, it creates an environment in which people can grow, an environment in which we can be built up, an environment in which each person is free to use their gift without being sort of uh, shut down by somebody else, shoved aside, or anything like that. So we keep order in the worship gathering so that selfishness or abuse of giftings doesn't lead to chaos. But order in and of itself is not the best thing that we can have. So Paul doesn't say, do whatever you want as long as it's in order. No, that's not exactly what he says. More important than being orderly is being constructive. Paul teaches the Corinthians that every component of their worship gathering should help believers grow in spiritual maturity. So for my second point this morning, look with me again, verses 26 through 33, we see believers needing edification. Okay, verse 26, he says this, what then, brothers? Well, when you come together, each one has a hymn or a lesson, a revelation, a tongue or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If you're a highlighter or an underliner person, that's the verse. Let all things be done for building up. And then he gives some instructions on tongues and prophecy. There's only so many people, and one at a time. Let there be uh, a response to it. Don't just go crazy with it. According to Paul, the central purpose of everything we would do on a Sunday morning here in our worship gathering is edification. Now, I don't want to assume knowledge. You know, we, we throw that word out a lot, but we may not really understand what it means. Uh, the root of the word, when, when it's a noun, it refers to someone who builds houses. It's a builder of a house. It's the idea of literally taking bricks and stones and, and building something up. And when we use that as a verb to edify one another, it means to build each other up. Right? Uh, not in a physical sense, but in a spiritual sense. When I say that I want to help edify you, it means I'm, I'm trying to build you up in faith, uh, help you to be stronger in what you believe about the Lord, help you to be uh, more confident, to be more grounded, to have deeper roots in Christ. That's the idea here. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5.11, he says to the, to the Christians, therefore encourage one another and build one another Build one another up, he says, just as you are doing. When Paul says that things ought to be done for building up, he means that when you structure a worship service, every component ought to have the same purpose. And it's this, producing more knowledgeable, confident, firmly grounded, spiritually mature followers of Jesus. Now, if we take that to its natural end, it means there are no extra bits to a worship gathering. There, there's not the, well, these things are about making disciples, you know, we're edifying each other, and then we just sort of tack on some things that don't matter. No, it means that everything we would do in a worship gathering has that purpose in mind, that it, all of it serves to build us up as a body so that we have deeper faith, more knowledge of Jesus, and ultimately we walk out of those doors every Sunday looking more like Jesus. That's the goal of what we do. Now, what, what can we do to that end? Paul gives us some examples, right? You could have a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. This list is not exhaustive. Paul doesn't say this is the only thing you can have. It's also not an order of worship. You know, this is not the bulletin from First Baptist Corinth. It's not that you can only do these things. But these are examples 
of components in a worship gathering that help people to understand more about who God is and what he's done for us. He says, when you come together, here's some things you could do. But notice the things he lists, okay? A, a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. You notice how those are all, um, those are gifts and, and things that, are, that are, have in them the idea of knowing more about Jesus and growing in looking like him. Right? He doesn't say, hey, when you have a worship service, feel free to do this wild thing or that crazy thing. No. Have elements in your service that help people to know and look like Jesus. I appreciate that he gives us some freedom here. He doesn't tell us exactly what we can do. We, can, we have liberty to structure our service as we want, as long as what we do helps us to grow in Christ's likeness. And I want to give you some examples from our services here at Crosspoint. And I'm thankful to Wes and Jim and David for their leadership. Um, a lot of thought goes into what does and does not happen in our time together. And so we're very intentional. So when we have components of our worship service, this is how they help to build up. We read scripture. We'll often start our services with scripture. We read it before the sermon because that increases our knowledge of God and his word. Okay, We're not just filling the time. We're doing that because it's helping us to know his word. Singing. Why sing? Particularly these days, people don't why sing anymore. Well, because we're praising God. The Bible tells us to do so. We're proclaiming these rich truths about God and his word and his salvation in Christ. We're singing them out to feed our soul and to strengthen our faith. And if you take Colossians 3, that means we're actually singing so that other people can be encouraged as well. Why do we give? Why do we have an offering time? Well, because we are uh, doing that as a sign of worshiping the Lord with what he's given us, reminding us daily that everything we have comes from God. We're not owners, we're stewards. And this practice of giving back to the Lord is hammering that into us week after week after week. I don't own this. God does. Uh, why do we have the confession of sin? I know that some people don't like that part of our service. Why do we do that? Well, it reminds us of our need to confess sin. We never get beyond that. We always confess our sin. It reminds us that we need to seek forgiveness in Christ. And it reminds us as we approach this table, Paul says, we don't want to do so in an unworthy manner. We don't just want to assume that people confess their sin. No, we want to be intentional to have a time of that to remind us that there's importance in confession and forgiveness. Why do we have prayer time? To remind us that God is our help and our provider. We can do our best, but at the end of the day, it's God who provides all that we need. Many of the things that we pray for are well beyond our abilities to control. Why do we have preaching? Particularly in today's day and age, why, why have a guy stand up and say, here's what the Bible says? Well, because it teaches us the Bible, and it calls us to worship and obedience to the God of the Bible. So every component we do in our worship gathering is designed so that when you put them all together, we walk out of here knowing more about who Jesus is. We walk out of here with a greater resolve to worship him, to walk in obedience, and to serve one another on this journey of life as a local church. Our worship gatherings are structured intentionally to build us up. So if you find yourself coming here and, and you have this thought of, I just don't feel like I'm 
getting anything. I go there, and it's just, eh. If that's you this morning, or maybe that's you watching online, I think there could be two, two possibilities. One of those, it may be that you don't know Jesus yet. You know, if you come to a church like Crosspoint and you don't know Jesus, I'm sure it probably seems strange, maybe boring, irrelevant. Well, these people singing about this guy, I don't even know him. Or sure reading from this book a lot, and I don't even, some guy named Jesus. If you don't know Christ, then our services that exalt Christ may seem foreign. And I want to encourage you in, in to, to come to know Christ, to repent of your sins and trust in him, and to join us in our services, not just as a spectator, but as a participant. So it's not just, yeah, I'm going there for whatever reason. It's, man, I'm going there because these people are about Jesus. It's Sunday morning, 1030. I could be anywhere, but I'm going to be here singing to the Lord, learning about his word, and asking these people sitting on the chairs next to me, Help me walk better for Jesus. Be about that. Now, it could also be the case if you find yourself saying, you know, I don't really get much out of the services. I don't feel like I'm being fed. It could be that you do know Christ, but that you've come here with the wrong attitude. Maybe your heart is just hard uh, from things in life. It could be anything. Or maybe you come with the idea of, you know, I'm here, so entertain me. If you come here with that attitude, it's, I'm not surprised at all that you would leave with the thought of, I didn't feel like I got anything. Because the gathering is not just going there and to get something. Notice in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 about using our gifts. It, the picture is not of you just sort of get there and you, it's the airplane chair and you just sort of lean back and you put your TV on and you do something. No, it's bust out your shovel because we got work to do. All of us. And it's in the giving together, it's in the everybody working together that all of us receive. So if you find yourself saying, I don't feel like I'm getting anything, maybe the problem is that you're not giving anything. And as we give, we receive. I'm sure you have been in some chaotic worship services. I have been. I've had those just eyes open like, what have I gotten myself into? I like YouTube, so I often will find videos of, of just chaotic worship services that people really talk about like, wow, look, look how spiritual they are. Look at all the stuff that's happening. God really must be moving. But no, it's, it's chaos. Nobody can understand what's being taught. Nobody can learn and grow and be built up from that. And many of our so-called churches today have filled their gatherings with pointless components, um, shenanigans and just nonsense that's meant to entertain the sheep rather than edify the sheep. I mean, I, you've probably seen them. I've seen videos of the pastor coming on a zip line from the balcony onto the stage because he wanted to give an illustration of Jesus coming back. Guys preaching on a, a series on intimacy, and so they get a bed on stage and they preach from the bed. Guys riding mo uh, motorcycles and cars down the aisles onto the stage. I've seen rap battles, two guys rapping about which sport team is better. This is Sunday morning church gathering. What'd you learn about Jesus? Who knows, but UNC is better than Duke or whoever, whatever. I mean, it's just chaos and stuff that Paul would look at and say, how does that build up the body? And the answer is, well, it doesn't, but it's entertaining. Paul would say, no, the goal is not to entertain, the goal is to build up. And I'm confident that when churches 
when they move away from components that build each other up and they go off onto all this stuff to entertain and attract, I think what it actually shows us is that the leadership of that church has lost confidence in God to build his church. And they've lost confidence in the word of God to instruct us. And they have to go to something else. The simple model of church from Acts 2.42, they devoted themselves to the, the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and prayers. For more and more churches, well, that's just old school. It doesn't work anymore. We need other things. But this is what the Bible teaches us. And this is actually what helps us to be built up. Every shenanigan, every entertainment thing that happens in a worship service, it may look cool, it may get them in the door, but it doesn't build them up to look more like Jesus. Often I think it builds us up to look more like the world. Here in the Corinthian church, we've got spiritual gifts being misused, chaos is ensuing. Paul writes to them and says, rein it in, bring order to this thing, and make sure that every piece of our worship service is to be building us up. Now, that teaching is universal. That applies to everybody, all of us. But we've also seen here in Corinth that there are some unique issues going on, particularly related to tongues and prophecy. And Paul does address them. So I want to read for, again for us verses 33 through 35. I'm sure these are the ones that jumped out to you as we read it earlier. And see that there's a context that needs consideration. Okay, context needing consideration. Verse 33b, he says, As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Can I ask for a show of hands? Any ladies, be honest. You sort of bristle up when you read that. Anybody willing to be honest and say Okay, thank you. Any men sort of be like, yeah, that's right. No, don't raise your hand for that. His wife's going to see. Yeah, th this is another one of those passages that a basic just glancing reading of it immediately, you just sort of say, ugh. Either sort of selfishly like, yeah, that's right. Or many of our ladies, I'm sure, look at that and they think, now hold on a minute, Paul. And there's passages like this that have led people to say, oh, Paul's very anti-women, very anti-women serving and things like that. Uh, but I want to ask all of us to just hold off a minute and let's work through the context here and try to figure out what is Paul actually getting at and what was the issue that's going on, okay? So I want to begin our analysis here with a couple of general observations first. If you're just standing back and looking at the text, some things we know. Okay, well, first of all, the context is a local worship gathering, okay? So we're dealing with a church on Sunday morning, okay? Uh, Paul is addressing women specifically, okay? So something's happening. Um, he is limiting some kind of speech, which we'll have to get to, in some kind of situation, which we'll have to get to. And lastly, Paul seems to refer to some cultural context that, that has a part to play in this. So let's take those general statements, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to tell you what I think Paul means, and then I'm going to explain how I got there, okay? So this is what I think Paul means. In the Corinthian worship gathering, some of the Christian wives 
not women, but wives, were questioning or challenging their husbands, which demonstrated a lack of submission. We've seen that before. And in so doing, they were shaming them according to the cultural context in Corinth. Therefore, to protect the integrity of the church in the eyes of outsiders, Paul exhorts wives to withhold their questions temporarily until they're in the privacy of their own home. Now, hopefully that sounds a little bit better, maybe not quite as bristly as the original. Let me read it one more time. In the Corinthian worship gathering, some of the Christian wives were questioning or challenging their husbands in, in, the, in the service, which demonstrated a lack of submission. And in so doing, they were shaming them according to the cultural context there in Corinth. And so to protect the integrity of the church in the eyes of outsiders, Paul exhorts those wives to withhold their questions temporarily until they're in the privacy of their own home. Now, here's how I got there. <clears throat> Let me give you three pieces of evidence for how I got there. Number one, we have the issue of wives or women. Uh, who all's verse 33 says women should keep silent? Show of hands. Does anybody say wives? No? Okay, that's fine. Uh, it, the Greek word that's translated here as wife or woman is the word gune. That's one of my favorites. I don't remember much from seminary Greek, but I remember gune. That's, that's my gune over there. So men, there's your new pet name. It's your gune. But the word gune is either woman or wife. It's translated both ways. And so as people who come to study the Bible, we have to figure out the context and whether Paul is talking to women in general or to wives specifically. Now, the other problem here is that it's paired with a word that can either mean man or husband. Again, depending on the context. But Paul is going to put these words together three times in this letter. And every time he does, he has in mind husbands and wives. Okay, the first time we saw this back in 1 Corinthians 7, when he's talking about marital intimacy. If you were here for that sermon, I, I got that one. And Paul talks about uh, each man should have his own wife, okay? Clearly there, it's if one man has one woman, that's a husband and a wife, okay? So Paul uses those two together. Later in 1 Corinthians 11, strangely enough, I got this one as well, the issue of head coverings. We saw the women were uh, going without their head coverings. Paul says, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Again, he uses these words, man and woman, clearly in the context, it's a husband and a wife. Well, now he comes to 1 Corinthians 14 and says the women should keep silent in the churches, and if there's anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home. Well, it's not any men at home, it's the man at home, but that's a husband. So I think, again, Paul is talking about here wives over women. Now, evidence number two is how he describes their speech. Did you notice that he doesn't say, hey, ladies, keep quiet because you're disrupting things? Did you notice that? He's, what is he, how does he describe it? He says, um, the last part of verse 35, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. He doesn't say it's disruptive. He doesn't say it's disorderly. He says it is shameful or disgraceful. Now, that means that there's something about 
this kind of speech, which we're not there to what that is yet, but there's something about the, the way that these ladies are talking, the things they are saying, that is considered shameful. Now, shame is determined by a context, by culture. Culture determines that which is appropriate, that which is shameful. So something happening in Corinth here is shameful. And I, I'm convinced that it has to do with the same issue we saw in 1 Corinthians 11. You remember how we preached? I preached on the head coverings and hopefully convinced you that the issue isn't really head coverings? Do you remember what the underlying issue was? I want to shout it out. Submission. Yeah. The, the head coverings, if you remember, was just an example of the outworking. But the problem was the, the wives were doing something that communicated a lack of submission to the husband. And Paul says that sends a bad signal to people on the outside. I think Paul is doing the exact same thing here. Something that, that these ladies are doing, something they're saying is sending a message to anybody who would look in. Man, those wives, boy, you ought to hear how they talk about their husbands at church. It's, it's shameful. It is disgraceful what they're doing. And what it seems to be that they're doing is the husbands are giving a prophecy or a tongue, or maybe they are giving an interpretation, and the wives are saying, oh, no, that's not what that means. Come on, Phil, you got that wrong. Or they're standing up and they're saying, are you sure it doesn't mean this? So they're challenging what the husbands are giving there. And it was considered to challenge your husband in that context, because remember, this is a public gathering. It was considered shameful. It was, it was not tactful, right? Also here, notice Paul does not limit women in all speech. He doesn't say, he doesn't mean here that women never say anything, okay? The context here is prophecy, tongues, the interpretation, the testing of them. So it's a very specific situation in Corinth where men are giving a word and some of their wives are challenging that word publicly. Their speech is, is questioning them. It's challenging them. And so Paul is telling them, hey, for the sake of just not appearing disgraceful, not appearing like you're um, trying to sort of you know, shove your husband aside and you have to talk and, and shame him, he says, just wait. If you have a question, ask him at home. Paul is not in any way saying that women are inferior. He's not saying that women know less than men. He's saying we're trying to preserve the integrity, the, the, the image of the church gathering. And so he says, ladies, in this one specific situation, wives, just wait. Wait to say something until later, until the, it's the privacy of your own home. Because then you don't have to worry about the public gathering. You don't have to worry about what people might think. Ask your question. Get into a heated debate. It's fine. And if Paul actually is meaning this, which I think he does, then it means he's not teaching about women as a whole in ministry. Again, Paul gets a bad rap that he's very anti-women. I don't think he is at all. He's addressing a unique situation. Furthermore, he's not saying, as I said, that women just have to be mute or wives have to be mute, that you have nothing to contribute. No, we've seen in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 already, the Spirit of God gives all of the gifts to all of the people. Women can have the gift of prophecy and tongues, all these things. So he, Paul is not just saying there's no place for you. No, not at all. He is limiting one very specific type of speech, exhorting the wives to value the 
image of the church, the integrity of what society might think of the church, over their need to be heard right then and there. It's what he's asking them to do. And that's why I think, I'll say it again, in the Corinthian worship gathering, some of the Christian wives were questioning or challenging their husbands, which demonstrated a lack of submission, and in so doing, they were shaming them according to the cultural context in Corinth. So, to protect the integrity of the church in the eyes of outsiders, Paul exhorts wives to withhold their questions until they're in the privacy of their own home. Now, if that's the case, the question then becomes, okay, if I can accept that, fast forward to 2022. What does that look like? Does that mean that Hannah can't lean over and ask me a question in the service? Not necessarily. Again, shame is determined by a culture. But again, it, it's the same issue of chapter 11. The, the outworking isn't really the question. It's the, 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 the basic issue is the submission. So if I, in our culture, it's totally fine for a man to say something and then a woman to stand up and say, no, I disagree with that, and his wife to say, I disagree with that, um, then that's not really the case here. We don't have to, to say you can't do that. But it, the challenge for us is to say, in the worship gathering, we're all sitting here as husbands and wives, some of us, is there some sort of speech that a wife says in the service that would be dishonoring to her husband? Or would be shameful. Okay, now we, we, our worship services, mostly only the people up here talk, at least as far as what we can hear. And so, um, but regardless, if you're in a service where people can just sort of talk freely, I think the, the main idea is everything a wife should say in the service, even if she disagrees with her husband on something, should be honoring and it should be respectful. Likewise, husband's the same thing. So we shouldn't say something in the service that disrespects our spouses. Wives in particular. Wives, you know how men are, husbands are. Fragile egos. I mean, we think we're all that in one word. I mean, it's just, oh, woe is me. I mean, as particularly wives, your words can cut like a knife because you're the closest person to us. So Paul says, look, when you're in the worship gathering, your husband stands up and says something. If you don't necessarily agree with it, that's fine. But there's a time and a place for that discussion or for that argument. Because what we don't want to do is communicate to everybody there that, you know, I, I think my husband doesn't know what he's talking about. I don't respect him, stuff like that. Because then the culture comes in and says, wow, can you believe the, the wives there at First Baptist Corinth? You ought to hear what they say about their husbands. And what does that say about the body of Christ? It says that we don't actually love each other. It says we, it says we don't take care, you know, our wives don't respect our, our husbands. I mean, it's just all the problems ensue. So a passage like this is not meant to put women in a box. I think Paul simply recognizes there's a cultural situation going on where, where speaking in a certain way against husbands is considered shameful. Paul says, look, do wives have something to say? Yes. But for the sake of what our body looks like to the world, let's just wait. You know, this was the issue we saw back in, in chapter 8. Pastor West preached on, like, personal liberty. You telling me that I have the right to do something, but I'm going to withhold for somebody else? No, no, no. Paul says, yes, yes, yes. So there's a situation in which we say, look, just wait. 
talk about it at home rather than having to, having to say it right now. It's got to get out there. I've got something to say. And then from that is the embarrassment, the conflict between husband and wife, things like that. Okay, the relationship between husbands and wives in our churches will send a message to the culture. It'll either communicate submission and respect, or it might communicate resentment and disrespect. Paul is concerned about this. I, I find it very interesting that now it's the second time Paul is, is saying, we need to be concerned about what the culture thinks of our church. I think there's an application there for us that it matters what people around here think about Cross Point Baptist Church. It matters. Now, obviously, there's a sense in which our culture, our culture is becoming more wicked, so at some point they're not going to like what we're doing. That's fine. But they hopefully will be able to look and say, those people, I don't believe any of that stuff they think, but man, their marriages are strong. I don't believe any of that Jesus nonsense, but man, they love their kids. I don't believe any of that Jesus nonsense, but they have arguments, they settle them, they settle them, they respect each other, they work hard. That's the idea here. That's fine if they want to disagree with our content, our theology. Paul's saying, look, it matters as a church what the people around you think about you. It matters the, the image that you uh, portray to people. So I think we as a church, we as Crosspoint, ought to care about what we're known for. We don't want to be known for the chaotic mess that's going on on Sunday morning and wives yelling at husbands and this guy is prophesying over that guy and just pandemonium. I don't want to be known for that. Sometimes, I know this is hard for me, I think it's hard for many of us, sometimes silence is best. Not all speech is beneficial. Not all speech is beneficial in the moment. Notice Paul doesn't say, wives, you have nothing to say, nothing to contribute. Wives, you just need to learn more. It's the context. It's the immediate context. Some speech is, is great. Some speech is great in certain settings. Okay. And I want to point out lastly, of course, in a point of application, and I tried to make this point in chapter 11, both men and women, husbands and wives, have limitations put on them by the Bible. I know that sometimes it's, it's preached more like, yeah, women get all the rules and men, we're just doing our own thing. No. Men folk, husbands, Read, read the Bible, and you will find plenty of limitations on what you can and cannot do and can and cannot say. So all of us in this, both husbands, wives, men and women, boys and girls, we come to a text like this, we come to any text in the Scripture, and there are restraints placed around us, often difficult restraints, that really go against our selfish desires, our, the way our culture is you know, sort of telling us to be. And so all of us are in this together to listen, to learn, to obey, and to look like Jesus. We're all in on this together. When you take chapters 12, 13, and 14 together, I think it's clear, hopefully it's clear by this point, that the Corinthian church is just awash in selfishness that has now caused them to sort of turn on each other, and there's chaos in the gathering. No more for the common good. Now it's about me, myself, and I. What can I do? What can I get? What, how can I be more important in the service? For us to build one another up, we have to put others' needs above our own. And I think that's the greatest challenge here for us. For me, certainly. When I come to a worship gathering, I've got, all, I've got my needs. I've got things that I would like. 
Paul says you got to put that aside and put other people's needs ahead of yours. That's the hard part. And so for the sake of the body, Crosspoint, I just want to encourage us to, every time we gather here on Sunday morning, leave the selfishness at the door, pursue the common good, and continue to structure our gatherings. This is more uh, maybe a challenge to elders and to those in leadership to continue to structure our gatherings so that every component of what we do on a Sunday morning gathering is constructive. It's building us up to be more spiritually mature followers of Jesus. Let me pray for us. Our Father in heaven, we are again grateful for your word, even one that is uh, maybe difficult to, to receive or digest. We pray, Father, that you would give us humility Help us to, uh, if we are hesitant towards something, to rest in what we do know, what is, what is obviously clear from Scripture, that you are a good and kind and loving God, that, you, that what you have for us is ultimately for our good and your glory, and that you have given us your Son, Jesus. In him we have life and forgiveness. So when we find something that may be a little difficult to receive along the way, and we're going to take it home and process, help us not to to let our own uh, feelings about this text override what we know to be true about who you are and who you have made us to be in Jesus. So may we honor you in our lives. May husbands and wives, we honor you in our treatment of one another, in our love for one another, our respect for one another. May we as a church be a witness to to our community around us, a witness of love and respect and order, and decency. May it be so of us at Crosspoint. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.